love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter number 3 this morning. Philippians chapter number 3. It's a joy to bring the Word to you this morning. And I pray that it's a blessing and ministers to your souls in a way that it has my own soul. This portion of Scripture in chapter 3, verse 17 through 4, 1 will be the focus of our exposition this morning. But what you'll find if you've been with us as we've been laboring through verse by verse that it is very much in the same theme and message. So I hope it won't weary you this morning that it's much of the same content in some sense. And yet at the same time we pray that it is fresh and new. We'll try to hit those points that aren't so fresh and new, and we may not give as much attention to those things that we have already um, hashed out. If you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll take up our reading in verse 17, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer one more time, and I pray too that that won't weary you as well. Um, It is in some sense that entirety of the service of God um, hangs upon the prayers of God's people. There is a very real reality that it is the life of the church. Um, We are totally dependent upon God, so let us run to Him often. So as we read His Word, then we will run to Him and ask Him to make it alive to us. So let us read together as Paul writes, God speaks in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which also, which, which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again. Because we are your people. And as your people, Father, we take so much delight, I pray, in communing with you. Father, we have much to say about the word this morning. But it's only because you have much to say to us. So we pray that as the text is read, Father, as the truth is proclaimed, that insofar as we are able, that you would help us to be faithful in the proclamation as well as in the hearing of the word. Yet at the same time, Father, in our limitation, we would beg and plead with you to make it alive to us. Father, that even as I proclaim the word, that it would convict my own heart. Father, that it would rebuke me if necessary. That it would correct me, Father, in the way that I ought to go. That I may be a more complete man in Christ. More thoroughly, furnished, more thoroughly furnished for every good work, Father. And I need to be a more faithful father. 
I need to be a more faithful son. I need to be a more faithful pastor. I need to be a more faithful husband. Father, so, so I pray that your word, Father, would accomplish that this morning in whatever means necessary. And that you would use it all in my own life, but in the people's lives. And that you would uplift the downcast this morning, Father. That you would encourage the faint-hearted. That you would just continue to strengthen the strong brethren, Father. And utilize this time together and to make us more like your son. So, Father, go with us now. Stay our minds. Tender our, tenderize our hearts. Open our ears. Father, give us eyes to see. And that we may look on heaven this morning into eternal things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. We're just going to hit the guy on running this morning. You'll remember that weeks ago we started out with a general introduction concerning, uh, a general introduction particularly to this passage in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 1. You'll find that there's a new thought that Paul takes, just like in one of our letters that we may write, um, with multiple thoughts and multiple paragraphs. The apostle um, picks up Philippians chapter number 3 with a new thought um, that, that is born out of the rest of the, of the passage. Uh, and in a general introduction concerning this passage, I talked to you a little bit about legalism and antinomianism. Now, legalism really has been that focus of our attention for over a month now because it seemed to be Paul's primary focus. Um, legalism being that doctrine, that teaching... Um, of the Judaizers, you'll remember that the Judaizers are those um, that would claim to be Christian, profess Christ, profess His death, burial, resurrection. Yet at the same time, they would they would um, they would they would bring an attack upon the the very gospel by attaching to the work of Christ something else that's necessary for salvation. Um, particularly with the Judaizers, it was a group it was a group of uh, Jewish identifying Christians who attach circumcision, circumcision and eventually, ultimately, the whole law um, to the gospel. They would not deny the death, burial, resurrection. They would not deny the major tenets of the faith. Um, yet at the same time, in attaching circumcision as necessary for salvation, um, they totally nullified the gospel 100%. I mean, it would be similar to taking a glass of water and adding one drop of poison I mean, it would contaminate the whole. It would change the entire nature. It would be, be as if we could take out the DNA of a person and attach one chromosome in an area that is not suitable, um, was not intended by God, and you would totally deform the entire being. Uh, see, when we talk about legalism, we talk about um, attacking the gospel at its core and attaching at least even one thing to it, requiring one thing outside of Grace alone through faith alone um, is a total offense to the gospel. And that's what Paul um, is dealing with. Yet at the same time, I introduced to you maybe a $7 word now with inflation. <laughs> you know, um, used to be a $2 word, 2023, it's a $10 word, uh, antinomianism. But if we break that word down really, um, it's very simple to understand, boys and girls. Uh, anti means against, and nomianism comes from that root word, which uh, that Greek word, nomos, which means lawism, would uh, kind of give it the indication that it is a concept 
um, that has been constructed, something that is believed by more than one person, readily accepted by a group of people. And it refers to those who teach people to deny the necessity of obedience in the Christian life. It, it too, is an offense to the gospel in a similar way, yet not the same, but in its effect, we would argue essentially the same, that the effect that it has upon the gospel is very similar to legalism. That they would deny that sanctification is a necessary fruit of justification, or that obedience is not necessary following salvation. As I said, antinomianism is an attack upon the gospel, not in the same way legalism is, by adding the work of Christ, adding to the work of Christ, as in obedience to the law, but by subtracting from the efficacy of Christ's work, by denying that the gospel has the power to transform lives, by arguing that people who have been saved, declared righteous, receive the righteousness of Christ, the very Spirit of God, they would argue that they could perpetually walk in patterns of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Legalism adds to Christ's work our filthy rags. Our obedience, our righteousness that's polluting the gospel. Antinomianism, on the other hand, subtracts what Christ produces in the redeemed sinner's life as a result of of justifying grace. You may not think that, or you may not seem at the beginning that that is nearly as much of an offense to the gospel as legalism, but the Apostle Paul in this portion of Scripture are going to call these people the enemies of the cross. That these are enemies to the work of Christ. And Paul has been objecting to that in some sense in the previous portion of Scripture. But this is something that we should take serious because He takes serious in multiple places in Scripture. Uh, one of those would be Romans chapter number 6. In Romans 4 and 5, Paul goes on and on about the magnificence of the grace of God in accomplishing the righteousness of Christ in us and justifying sinners freely apart from our works. And he comes to a climax in Romans 5.20 and he says, where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. And then Paul, like a, like a lawyer with an, with an invisible objector, um, argues in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1, and this is the objection, if increasing sin causes grace to abound, well, let us sin that grace may abound. His reasoning is like this. If I'm righteous, if, 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 I'm, right, if, if, if I'm righteousness, or if I'm righteous because of Christ's work, and grace abounded because of my sin, then why in the world wouldn't I sin more that more grace could abound? After all, the more sin that I sin, the more grace that we have. Paul, of course, responds with the strongest negative that you'll find in the Scriptures, and he says, no, 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 no. He follows up with, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The answer is, is that you can't. To argue that a person has no obligation according to the grace that has been extended to him and the righteousness that has been extended to him, is to argue against the nature of the gospel because the gospel produces something in the life of a believer. And here in the letter to Philippi, Paul takes up the task to address it, not that maybe not that exact same issue, but at least a similar issue. At least a similar issue. 
And now that Paul has refuted the very principle in the previous verses, he takes as his task to hit it right, the, the, the hammer, take the hammer and hit it right on the head of the nail. After exhorting the Philippian believers to pursue holiness strenuously as a disciplined runner in the race, Paul exhorts the Christians there now to follow um, his example and the example of other faithful Christians modeled after him. And along with that exhortation, Paul gives two reasons. So what Paul's going to do here is Paul is going to first commend himself to the church at Philippi once again as a faithful example to follow. And he's going to illustrate what that example should not look like in the antinomians. And he's going to look, he's going to illustrate what it should look like um, in following his example in looking unto Christ. So uh, for the purpose of our text this morning, I'm going to give you number one, Paul's exhortation for emulation in verse number 17. Paul's exhortation for emulation or imitation, Paul exhorts the brethren to follow Godly examples. Verse 17, we we read, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. Now Paul had already exhorted them in verses 15 and 16 to follow after his teaching, to follow after the truths that he had laid out before them. Everything that was embodied in his testimony, he says, walk like this. Keep the rule, walk in it. Um, guard it, and let me just say that in some sense, that's all you really need, you know. All you need is the Word of God in its ultimate sense, technically speaking. Um, all you need is for God to speak, you to hear, God to make the change, and it is sufficient for you to make a change in your life as the Spirit of God comes alongside. You know, in some sense, as fathers and mothers, you know, it's, it, it should be enough for our children to, just to hear and listen. But at the same time, we know that God has given us other means um, to lead um, those that are under our authority. And Paul particularly, God has, in the church of Philippi, God has graciously extended to them not only truth in didactic form or teaching from a lectern or a pulpit or in a counseling session, but Paul commends to the church at Philippi and we should commend to one another godly examples um, to follow. And that's exactly what um, he does. And again, we saw that reality in Philippians chapter 2 just a couple of months ago. Paul commends himself as well as Timothy, Epaphroditus, their ministry to them. Um, but he also extends to them as, uh, as examples. And we, and we discuss the need for godly example in discipleship. Disciple simply means learner. And learning, we need to understand, is not only confined to a transfer of data from one person to another, in a teaching format. But some of the greatest teaching and some of the greatest learning happens in the simple observation of another person's life and example. And you'll see the importance of this in the following verses. Because Paul is going to argue that you're going to see a certain type of people. And you don't follow after them. But there's a certain type of people that you do. That example in life puts hands and feet on the truth of God... And he uses it mightily to transform us, me, you, our children, practically into the men and women that he desires for us to be. And on the flip side, it should be duly noted, and maybe even more importantly to some extent, that it may be that our nation, our community, our churches, our families are in such poor condition because the opposite too is true. That 
that godliness among the people of God will want, will lack, if there are few to no godly examples to follow. If we're not seeing it with our own eyes, what true godliness is. Even larger problem in the church and family is that that is, is the adherence of truth mentally. But it's not being lived out in the lives of those professors. Thus we suffer from one of the most grievous sins on a relational plane, which is hypocrisy. What ends up happening is that we have children that are abandoning the faith because mom and dad said, yet they would and did not. And the mentality is because they are the authority that they should do as I do and, or do as I say, not necessarily as I do. And think that because they instructed them verbally that they're not responsible for their children's abandonment of the faith, not realizing that they will at least impart, we will at least be in part held responsible. Because one of the quickest ways to break the commandment of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, provoke not your children to wrath, is to live a hypocritical life. In essence, you're saying to your children uh, lies. We're lying to our children about the Christian faith. Example is paramount. In tandem with the truth and the Spirit of God, it, it has the ability to promote life and godliness. Without it, in many respects, we're not only deficient, but within the church, we are even more deficient. We are uh, Why? Because, because we say without doing, and it affects those that are around us. It affects the gospel. In the words of Paul to Titus, uh, quote, They profess to know God. But in works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And you see the contrast of that in Titus 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen, to profess to know God. And to live a life of ungodliness is to lie to the world, it is to deny the truth, and it is an offense to the gospel. And we will be held responsible for that. To profess to know God and to live godly is too, on a positive note, to affirm the gospel with your life. And it is powerful. Um, some of the most powerful times in my life have been when a truth is lying dormant upon my conscience. And God puts a man in front of me, or God puts a woman in front of me, or God puts my wife in front of me, or God even puts my children sometimes in front of me to prick my heart as they live out faithfully the gospel more than I do. And God humbles the heart. And God uses it to provoke us to godliness. That there is a power in the gospel-driven life and faithfulness unto God. And yet at the same time, there is a power um, other, uh, of another that, that, that can quench the very Spirit of God and harden in us um, hearts of rebellion towards God. Why? Because of the hypocrisy um, in which we carry. John MacArthur says we need to follow someone um, who is not perfect. And it's true. So that we can learn how to overcome our imperfections. We need other men. We need other women. We need other faithful workers in the Lord. Yes, Jesus is our ultimate example. Yet at the same time, God gives us imperfect examples, as MacArthur says, so that we would know how to overcome those um, imperfections. 
So Paul says, consider us in verse number 17. Look to us as a godly example. And not only myself, but also note those who else walk. And you have us for a pattern of life. So he says, consider us. In what particularly? Well, one commentator writes, when he commands us to follow his example, he adds an explanation in verse 18. The link between the verses follow. He says, imitate me because by doing so, you will live a life which accords with the truth about the cross in verse 18 and the coming of Christ in verse 20. In other words, when the truths about the cross and the coming are grasped, a certain way of life naturally follows. The integration between what we believe and what we do lie close to the center of Paul's thinking. He expressed it beautifully in writing to Titus, as we've already said, some profess to know God, but deny Him by their deeds. Christians must too adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by the way they live, end quote. So Paul is first going to illustrate the effectiveness of the cross and the coming of our Lord in a negative example. What happens when you abandon that? What happens when you profess to know God but you deny Him in your deeds? What type of life does that look like? And he gives that to us in verses 18 and 19. So number two, we not only see Paul's exhortation to emulation, but Paul's explanation with lamentation. And again, just big words, boys and girls. Um, essentially, that means that, that, that Paul is warning the, Philipp- the Philippians against e- about evil people and an evil life. And it is grieving his heart such that he is in tears. It, what it means is, is that Paul is going to warn the Philippians with a broken heart over those who profess to know God, and yet they deny Him um, by their, their lives. So Paul identifies here the antinomians, number one, as the enemies. I want, to, I want to draw to your attention the enemies of the cross. We want to know, I think, who are the enemies of the cross. Now this is hard language. And if we had just isolated those verses and not kind of already drawn your thinking to a certain way, when you read verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I, I wonder if we would have isolated those verses at the very beginning of the sermon, out of context, and ask you, like, what group of people do you think that is? What would we have thought? I think in my own mind, I, I, would have, I, I, would have, I would have went to the atheist. I would have went to the godless. I would have went to just the rank liberals who deny the word of God. Those that have given themselves over to all sorts of ungodliness. Why? Because this language is so hard. It's actually so hard that some Christians conclude that Paul here is not referring to professing Christians at all but outright pagans who have openly abandoned God. But I think here that he is actually talking about those who are professing Christ. I think that what we have here is Paul's reasoning is trying to show the true nature of these people, which is miles apart from true Christianity. But I think there is good reason here to believe that Paul's speaking concerning professing believers. Number one is because of the repetition of the term walk. Verse 17 and 18, the same word is used in the original. And it's one of Paul's favorite words to use for the Christian life. The conduct, it is a walk. 
in our Christian life. Um, that as we honor the Lord, we seek to live after Him. Paul often refers that to refers to that as our walk, and that can be a positive walk or a negative walk, a godly walk or an ungodly walk. In verse eighteen, Paul says, "For many walk," as he said in verse seventeen. And note those who also walk. Speaking of Christians, speaking of those at least that externally identify as those that are the people of God. Number two. Is Paul himself. Paul is overcome with emotion in this passage as he thinks about these people. This place actually seems to be the only place in all of Paul's writings that he is currently weeping as he's writing. There are several places that you can find him heartbroken. He speaks about his grief, even weeping over certain things. But all of those places are past tense. For whatever reason, Paul seems to be writing these very things. And at the same time, his heart is breaking. And possibly the pages, the parchments, the, the papyri that he's, that, that he's writing on or his scribe is writing on, had he been pinning it with his own hand, would have been, would have been soiled with the tears of Paul. Now, if these were rank unbelieving pagans, I find it hard to believe that Paul would have that reaction. Because Paul deals with rank unbelievers in different ways. The Scriptures do. Desiring justice and, and various things. Yes, with love. But at the same time, not like this. That Paul seems to be grieving over a people who one time, or at least now, Claim to be Christ. And it may be that at Philippi, he, coming to mind as he thinks about these things, he's thinking about those who used to walk alongside him. Why? Because he's actively engaged in the ministry. You know? Like it breaks my heart that the world is in the way that it is. But when I read this passage, certain men come to mind that have abandoned the faith. Men that I have prayed with. Uh, men that I have preached after and alongside. And today they are apart from Christ. Not only abandon the truth altogether, but some have abandoned the truth in such a way that it brings a reproach upon the name of Christ. Their life denies God, uh, the, the godliness. And it denies the power of the gospel therein. And I think that that's what Paul is trying to um, commend to us. That there is a group of people within the local assembly or outside the local assembly, within the purview of the church at Philippi, who are carrying the very name of Christ, yet at the same time, they are um, denying Him by their works. So, we could conclude here, that when Paul refers to the enemies of the cross, he's speaking not about those who are openly opposed to the gospel, like atheists seeking to burn every Bible they find. Not, not speaking about the advocates of abortion at a a hostile clinic to the reality of the faith and repentance. But these are people who agree with the claims of Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He died for their sins, was raised the third day for their justification, and they actually utilize that very gospel to do the things that are in opposition to Him. That's what you're going to see in just a moment. That they're actually going to glory in their shame. That these are the enemies of the cross. And they would say, I heard, likely a hearty amen to all the doctrinal points that I just told you. They become enemies of the cross, not by their opposition to the cross of Christ in doctrine, or their outright profession against it. But they have become enemies of the cross by their positive, by their profession accompanied by their outright denial of the truth in their behavior 
contrary to that claim. That the cross produces something in their lives. That, that, that it actually accomplishes something that is, that is otherworldly and eternal. And a life lived in opposition of that um, is an offense to the gospel and it's affecting Paul to its very core. It's very core. We could say in one sense, as we've said, the thesis verses, we've drawn that thesis verse from verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 27, that they failed to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of Christ and became an offense to the gospel. And I hope that we see now at least how antinomianism is an attack upon the gospel as much as legalism is. So then Paul moves on to detail for us. We may say, what do these people look like, Paul? If you're going to call them out, how do we identify them? What are some things, some details in which we might look for? Well, Paul gives us four details I want us to look at. Number one, he marks them out by their destiny. Verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Number one, whose end is destruction. Paul looks beyond the world. He grips a hold of eternal things. When he sees their lives, he not only sees the impact of it now, but all throughout eternity. And he marks out these men as men who have no hope. No hope here. No hope there. Eternal loss is their lot in life. And even more, their lot in death. Not only will they be destroyed here, but they will be destroyed there. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks to these people. These shall be punished, he says, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day, Paul continues, to be glorified in His saints, to be admired among all those who believe because of our testimony among you was believed. And Paul is speaking about a group of people that will stand before God on that great day and give an account of their lives. And Paul is convinced, which may also indicate his, his affectionate plea, his grievance in his heart, the tears upon the page, as he thinks about their eternal destiny, their everlasting conscious torment as an unbeliever in hell. Once for all, not, not once for all destruction in the sense of annihilation, but an everlasting consummate destruction. Always in process of dying, yet never being able to die. Imagine that for a moment. As a young person, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Ever crying out for death, for a release or rest. But the longer that you live in this body, the more pain that you experience, the more fallen that you feel that you've become the more the aches and the pains begin to creep, the more that you spend with the dying. You realize that this is a human reality um, that is plagued upon all man. And for some, it drives men insane, and at some point, even the bringing death upon themselves. Imagine being at that point of never being able to find rest for the pain that you have. Paul says that's what eternity is going to be like. But such that the, the man in Hades would cry out just for a drop of water upon his tongue for some relief. We don't say that joyfully. We don't say that flippantly. But we don't avoid that altogether. We say it soberly. We say it reverently. We say it lovingly. And we say it with tears in our eyes as the Apostle Paul. 
There is a life lived in this world that will lead to that destruction. And Paul, as he looks at that life that is being lived out among these people, it destroys his heart to the point of tears. Why? Because he looks beyond that. And the destruction, the loss of the money, the the, the type of prolific lifestyle that is going to just ruin their lives here and now. He looks beyond that. And he sees the eternal destination of men like this. Men like what? Number two, men characterized by sensuality. He goes on to say that whose end is destruction, but also whose God is their belly. Boys and girls, belly or appetite, it literally means stomach. The stomach to the Hebrew would have been what we refer to the viscera, the root word comes from. It was considered to be the seat of the person's raw desires. You boys and girls may be nervous sometimes about something and you, it's like your heart drops into your stomach and it just feels all warm and horrible inside. Um, it's, just, it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling and there's this anxiety and this stress upon you. That, that, so they, they looked at the belly oftentimes as the seat of the heart, as the heart altogether, that which um, your, your will, your mind, your heart altogether was kind of in, in that, uh, the, the whole person was kind of embodied there in that idea of the stomach, the belly, the appetite, the viscera. And Paul says that those people whom I look at, and I worry about them. I'm concerned about their, 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 their eternal state. Are those who are characterized who have a, whose belly is their God. It's a funny expression. Um, these people are like that. What Paul is saying is, is, is that they're led by their body, their inner person, the seat of their emotions, their desires, their, their impulses. It's kind of what that word too means their nature, apart from God, that that is their God. So as we are to be following after God as the ultimate authority, these people follow after their body as their ultimate authority, and thus it becomes their God. They are led by unbridled passions, unrestrained desires. They are governed by self-pleasing in bodily matters. They recognize no need for authority outside of personal satisfaction. They are devoted totally to self-indulgence. Their appetites and their emotions have ceased to be subject to them and have been given the place of lordship and worship in their lives. They bow down to their own desires. And it's interesting here, because again, when we think about people like this, we think about the worst of men. We think about serial killers. We think about you know, sexually immoral, just the greatest of fornicators. But Paul here doesn't actually identify any particular sin. He identifies a pattern of life. A pattern of life. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking because we're not as bad as someone else's pattern of life, giving over to their desires, such as a serial killer or a rapist or whatever, and we think that, that because we have a much more mild pattern of life given over to our self-indulgences and characterized by that, we're safe. Paul says no. Paul is arguing in some sense, I think, here, and we could argue as the people of God that we can, we can um, kind of veil our pattern of self-indulgence in a moral capacity such that it makes us feel at ease um, with the life that we're living 
That it's not quite given over to the same immorality as others. And ours is somewhat mild, so God will understand. But God doesn't speak in patterns of the hands here. He speaks in patterns of the heart. And a Christian who utilizes the grace of God to, 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 and, and the forgiveness of Christ there on the cross to make a path for, self in, for a life of self-indulgence as mild and as moral as we want to paint it, um, Paul says, I'm worried for you. Why? Because the cross is the total opposite of that. It is self-sacrifice. It is the death of self. It is taking up one's cross and following Jesus. It is the essence of service, humbling oneself, um, stepping out of heaven, giving up rights and privileges, um, and even somewhat desires so that, that He may benefit a people that were not His people. It was an expression of love. And these type of people, these people themselves, are those that only love themselves. Let me say that there are, there are no doubt out there Christians who take that as their banner and in a very mild way is going under the radar of most of Christianity are enticing themselves with self-indulgences and their own desires totally abandoning the authority of God. And Paul is worried about you. And I am worried about you. Because the very nature, you see how now they're enemies of the cross? Because the very nature of the cross and what it accomplished, um, it, it, it produces the opposite in people. Sacrifices, the giving of self, the laying aside of certain desires and passions. This is what Christ accomplishes. But not only that, they're, they're, they're number three, um, or two, however you're taking notes there. Um, men characterized by shamelessness. By shamelessness. Not only whose God is their belly, but whose glory is in their shame. Whose glory is in their shame. They find cause to glory in those things. Things which they should be ashamed of. Their sense of value justifies the things which ought to condemn. In other words, they exalt practices and things which they ought to be ashamed of, but they're not. They don't blush. And what you'll see if you, if you continue to look at it as a progression, as a progression downward. First, they give themselves the self-indulgence. And next, they justify themselves in that self-indulgence and say that it's proper and allowable way of life. Um, Isaiah chapter 5 is a good, in, is a good um, illustration of that. You remember that great phrase, call evil good and good evil? It's important to note that these type of people would do that. They would actually not only engage in self-indulgence, but they're going to get to the point where there's no shame I mean, what they're doing, but they're actually going to elevate it to a moral standard. That this is right. And on the flip side, they're going to take that which is good, and they're going to um, villainize it and make that. And I think that that's an important distinction to make there in Isaiah 5, because what we can do oftentimes is we can think of it um, in the way of... Uh, in the way of just saying the same thing backwards, but that's not it at all. Calling evil good and good evil are two different things. Um, and to, 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 to grip one, you have to grip the other, because they live in tandem with one another. I experienced this out at the abortion clinic this week as we're standing there crying out to women. Um, one on there is vilifying just the nature of the gospel and at the same time elevating what they're doing as a moral good. 
Um, that they're calling what is being done for the sake of these women and these children, that what we're doing is evil. And they're calling what they're doing is good. And they're justifying it with Scripture. They're calling themselves Christians. They have churches and their pastors. They have religious rites and sacraments. And they worship their God, which is their belly. Which is their belly. Yet at the same time, let us not be so deceived in our much more mild Christianity to think um, that we are any different. And that maybe God is not our belly. Say, what does it look like if God is your belly? Well, it may just look like simple things. My my body desires more sleep. Maybe we can illustrate it like that. Because of my inordinate desire to be lazy. And it cries out, more. What do I do? I roll over like a door upon its hinges and say, I'll obey. For one, it may be the lust of the eyes that demands gratification. And he says, I'll obey and darken the light of my body with the lust of my flesh. For another, sexual desires, the body will spring up and demand fulfillment. And he will say, she will say, I will obey. And surrender themselves to fornication or whatever form is demanded. It may be that there are those who desire for pride and recognition. And every time that your body says, I need more, they speak out, demand fulfillment. The body says, I will. I will. It may just be some simple gratification um, within a Christian home. And then later you'll look back and you'll say, I know I was corrected back then, but I was justified. You know, there's no abandonment of self. Uh, there's no shame in it. You're willing to take a stand for whatever it is when, when God, um, God's Word is clear. And then number three or four, however you're taking notes again, um, men who set their mind on earthly things. This is kind of the culmination of it. Now, their entire mindset, their entire disposition, their entire attitude is preoccupied with this world and this world alone. The physical, the material aspects of the world, the body, the things that govern the appetites, their actions, feel, taste, touch, sight. They have no sense of another world. They're living for the here and the now and not the later and the then. Um, the things that we can see, not the things that we can't. Romans 8, 5 speak of these people that live according to the flesh. They set their minds. The entirety of their men, their inner men, their inner women on the things of the flesh. Paul goes on to say, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, to be carnally minded is death, he says. Why? Because the carnal mind, he says, is enmity against God. You get that? These are enemies of the cross. These are enemies of the cross. Why? Because they are not subject to the law of God, Paul says in Romans 8. You see the same digression in Romans chapter number 1. You read things like they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him. They became futile in their thinking. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They did not see the, uh, to fit to acknowledge God. And God gave them up to a based mind. This is the point of spiritual total collapse. They know the truth. They've denied the truth. They've made another God out of the creature, out of self, um, such that God gives them over to their debased mind. You know what God says? There's people within the church or there's people within your purview that are claiming to be Christians and it breaks my heart. Do not follow after them. So then Paul transitions number three um, in our major points to his commendation and the positive for imitation or emulation. And again, boys, just big words to say, Paul gives us a good example. This is the man you want to follow after. And Paul gives us a good example 
of where our minds ought to be. And I want to very quickly just note the contrast. That there's a contrast within the text. Alright? And I want you to note immediately the context. Or the contrast. But number one, the enemies of the cross are heading for destruction in verse 19. But those that are of God, have their minds set on things above, they're awaiting for a Savior in heaven. Verse number 20. Enemies of the cross headed for destruction. Paul, where do you see the people of God go? They're waiting for that great day in which they will meet their Savior face to face. In verse 20. The enemies of the cross are devoted to the body. Worshipping and making a God of their appetites. Yielding to every desire. But we, the people of God, quite the reverse. Look for our body's transformation. Literally, the word there is low, it says lowly body. Literally, the word could be body of our humiliation. That the people of God understand the body. And that the body is not to be, is, is not to be Lord over us, but we are to be Lord over the body as Christ and God, uh, the, the, the triune God is Lord over us. That the body should not control the man, but the man should control the body by the power of the Spirit according to the truth. Such the, the, the spiritual man, um, sees the body in its true light. And that the body is to be used as a tool for the glory of God. Thus Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Yield your members to righteousness as tools and as instruments. That the people of God, church, the people of God, brothers and sisters, brethren, boys and girls, that the people of God, by the power of the Spirit, govern their bodies. They are not governed by them. They do not yield themselves. They control their bodies as they yield themselves to the Word of God. Number three, that the enemies of the cross have a perverted, totally flipped upside down scale of what's true, what's right, what's valuable, what's ethical. And they glory in that shame. Evil, good, good, evil. But we, as the people of God, possess a true perception of value. Having some appreciation for now, even His glory, verse 21. And then they... That are earthbound. So, so they are earthbound here. Thinking physically, materially, all the time governed by what they can see with their eyes, touch with their hands, taste with their tongues, hear with their ears. But we are of the commonwealth of heaven, verse 27 says. That Paul here in this portion of Scripture, as we read in Second Peter chapter number 3, is drawing our attention from physical plane to eternal. He's saying that the people of God are in total contrast. That the gospel actually accomplishes something that is otherworldly. We have worldly and otherworldly here in this passage of Scripture. That the enemies of the cross are in contrast to those who await their Savior patiently, looking and longing for His return. And Paul here points, and I would just emphasize very quickly, that Paul... Um, hangs the Christian life on two primary doctrines. Looking back to the cross in Philippians 3 as our impetus to move forward in holiness. And yet at the same time, looking unto Jesus, 
The second coming of Christ. That great day will stand and give an account uh, to Him. Thus, thus in Second Peter 3, Matthew 24 and 25, many other places, they were to look unto that great day and that great account as the culmination of human history and really the culmination of the work of Christ upon the cross. And together, as we look back and we look forward, it should be producing a holiness in the life of God's people. We see the presence of Christ in the cross and His humiliation, yet at the same time His exaltation on that great day. Both should bring us in submission to the Word of God. This is what characterizes God's people. So I would encourage you, church, that we should give more attention in our daily lives, not only in my sermons, although that is necessarily true, um, but also in our daily lives to waking up in light of not only the cross, but also the second coming. And it will change your life. There is no doubt in my life. You could almost characterize the people there in verses 18 and 19, the enemies of the cross, as those who do not look to the cross nor the coming. Nor the coming. And you can actually see in Second Peter 3, if you go back and read the previous passage that Nathan read this morning, what you find are markers of the second coming. You find those who say, He's not coming. Where is your Lord, they say. Where is He at today? He's not coming. And Peter just commends to them over and over again in different ways that God is not slack concerning His promise, that Christ is coming again, and therefore it should affect the way that you live now. Be holy. Be diligent. You know, we have just lost so much in the eschatological paradigm, the, the, the end times type of mentality, um, although it's right and true and rightly held. It's not about charts. It's not about time. Um, it's not about uh, identifying necessarily every little inch and ounce, although, although worthy endeavor, if that's what God has given you a niche for. But at the same time, don't lose the primary purpose of knowing that Christ is coming. Every time, I would argue, almost at least, almost every time, what you find is that when, when, when Paul, when Christ brings up the second coming, it is moral. It is not to, 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 um, it is not to fascinate your curiosity. It is not to tantalize your, your, your inner man. It is not to seem mysterious. It is so that you would be a certain type of people. A people who look to heaven. A people who are holy like Christ. A people who are preparing themselves for that great day. That's why he says in Matthew 24 and 25 over and over again, be ready. It is so that you will prepare yourself to meet the great bridegroom. That we would stand before Him as a spotless bride. It is so that we would pursue holiness as more diligently as a runner to seek after that prize. Thus Paul commends in this passage that the people of God are those whose citizenship is not here in this earth, not bound up in earthly things, but verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And this is a wonderful a beautiful image. This is something that um, the, the, um, the church at Philippi would have totally understood. Um, the church at Philippi was a, was a Roman colony apart from Rome. They were in Europe, but they were governed by another land. You know, such that if you were to enter into Philippi, you were a European, never been there before. You'd look around and be like, who are these people? 
Why? Because they dressed like Romans, they talked like Romans, um, the language that they utilized was Latin, which is the language of the Romans. They ate like Romans, they fought like Romans. Why? Because they were Roman citizens. They were, they were, they were governed by another king. They were outside of their native land, but they were, they were living as if, as if the king was there. That the kingdom was being spread throughout the earth. And that's the illustration that Paul is giving here. Paul is saying, look church, look Philippi. And I'm saying this morning, look Christ Bible Church. Look brothers and sisters. That we, our citizenship is in heaven. That we have another king who is seated upon the throne. We are a kingdom not of this world. And we are to look different. We are to speak different. We are to live different. We are to eat different. We, why? Um, not, not to be different for oddity's sake. There's no virtue in being different for oddity's sake. That's immaturity. I've been there. You know, as a young man, as a young boy, just wanting to stand out for standing out's sake. But we are different. We are not different for oddity's sake. We are distinct because we are Christ's. You know, they weren't different just to be different. They were, they were different because they were Roman. And we today are to be different and distinct. Why? Because Christ is our King and it should be readily um, recognizable to the rest of the world. We will be odd. Why? Because we are to be different. Why? Because we are distinctly Christian. Not in a holier-than-thou mentality, but we are to wave the flag of our homeland free and boldly. Why? Because we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. And that gospel is proclaimed and displayed in my life. Therefore, I will neither be ashamed of my actions. I will not. When it is the right thing to do, I will not be ashamed of submitting to my king. There will be punishment, there will be persecution, there will be opposition that arises, and and, and there is no shame in that. Why? Because we serve another king. We are of another kingdom. Verse 20 says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. In the original, um, it's much more emphatic um, than we read here in the English. It expresses a concentrated eagerness and a persistence of expectation, one commentator writes. He goes on to say, it suggests an eye detached from every other object to watch only for him when he comes in the fullness of the office of his Savior. But that's what he means. That's why the, the, the translators include that word eagerly there. It's like he's got his eye on that. And not just that. Listen, we're not, we're not guys and gals who just you know, sit around and stargaze all day long. You know, and just hope for something better. That the grass is greener on the other side. That just as last week as a runner, as an archer, um, our target is before us. And we don't ignore all other things. Because if we ignore all other things as an archer, you know what's going to happen? We're not going to count for the wind. We're not going to account for the circumstances, the environment, that, that we, as we gaze into another land, we actually not, we don't stand there just as stargazers, only focused on that, but we take into account everything for that purpose. As the archer um, is aiming at the bullseye target, he's not ignoring everything else, but he's utilizing every individual piece of evidence to navigate hitting the target. That's who we are. We take all of life. We are Christians who understand that Christ is to, be, is to govern all of life. 
And that we utilize as we gaze into heaven. It's not as if we take our eyes off of the earth and have our hands beside us and we're just pitching our tent until Jesus comes. Oh no, it is because our eyes are on heaven that our feet are laboring to work, that our hands are diligent to serve, and that we are looking to leave an impact in this world for the cause of Christ. That when we leave, as we mentioned months ago, yes, we will be quickly forgotten. But may the imprint of Christ upon our lives leave a lasting impression for generations to come, either in our life or in our death, either in our victory or in our persecution. You know, whether or not they, they, they yield, may they know that, that, that when I leave this world, He was not different for oddity's sake, but He was distinctly Christian because Christ was His King. Christ was her King. And that goes for you too, boys and girls. That if you claim to be Christ's, if you claim to be a Christian, then you have a certain obligation to live for Him in this life, even under your mommy and your daddy's care. That there is a way to honor Him as a child. That's why Paul instructs you in Ephesians chapter 6, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There is a way to carry yourself, even as a 7-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a 15-year-old, that you too, if you are in Christ, are characterized by a certain pattern of life. It may not look exactly like your mom and dad's or like another Christian's, but it is the pattern giving up of yourself, taking up of your cross, following Jesus. Why? Because you're looking at the cross and you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. This is what Paul is arguing for here. Thus we eagerly wait with our eyes detached, put upon that prize, not ignoring everything else in the world, but taking everything into account. Why? Because each piece plays a piece in the puzzle. And I need to honor God in all things. So it makes me more, it should make me more diligent in the pursuit of holiness. Taking off the old man and putting on the new. And he goes on to say, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. We've mentioned this in times past. I'm not going to give a lot of attention to it. But what a blessing it will be on that great day when he takes this body of humiliation, rightly understood, to be a vessel of his honor and glory, and can be used even now. Yet at the same time, I long for that day, this body of death, when it will be laid aside and given a new glorious body in which Christ will be finally and fully submitted to along with all things, in the manner and respect that He deserves. Won't it be great that day when we can finally worship Him, not like the angels, but I would argue even greater than the angels. Why? Because our vision of grace, when we look at them face to face, will be unparalleled, and they will look and wander in and gawk, as they do now, at the grace of God, because they've not experienced it in the manner we have. What will it be like on that day when we finally understand the grace of God infinitely more than we do even this day? What a blessing. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. So stand fast in the Lord. And in some respect... He gives us one more exhortation, one last admonition as he sandwiches this passage um, 
together. And he gives one final call to stand firm. Why? Because I think he knows the draw of the world. He understands as his heart breaks over those people that are outside of Christ in their life, and those enemies of the cross. Remember, I think that, that what he's getting at here is, is that there are those within the Christian faith who are debauching Christ's name, um, and they're doing it by denying Christ in their lives. It doesn't, their lives don't correlate with truth. And his heart is breaking, I think it's personal, experiential, practical. And it may be that he sees some of that happening in Philippi. And if not, he understands that that could happen to any of us. That yes, technically, those theologically, those who you know, he began a good work in will complete it till the day of Christ. Yet at the same time, he recognizes that some of the means that God uses to keep men on the path running is a word like stand firm. Hold fast. Dig your feet in. Keep your eyes on Christ. That we need the, the, the spiritual exhortation of the Word of God and one another. Need somebody on the sidelines. You, know, you need a mother, need a father, need a wife, need a brother. You know, who sees you to begin to deter. And says, straighten up. Keep on the path. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, stand firm. That the enemies of the cross are real. They're true. And I'm begging you not to follow after their example. Mark out your life according to Paul, to me, and to those, and note also those who walk. Don't walk after them. My heart breaks for them, and my heart does not desire to break for you. So application, what does this look like practically? We've kind of talked about what it looks like doctrinally, theologically, externally. Tried to apply it at least to what Paul's discussing here. What does it look like for you? It might just look like a man. A regular man. Who professes Christianity. And neither denies or propagates the truth of God. The gospel with his daily life. On the positive end, men, I want to commend it to you. It looks like a guy who just wakes up consciously aware that one day of what Christ did upon the cross on his behalf, and yet at the same time, that one day he'll stand and give an account to God for the life that he's lived and the life that was purchased and bought for him. So in his decisions, when he raises his family, relates to his wife, lives out his career, he doesn't live simply by the rule of self-indulgence. He doesn't look in his own heart and follow it. He recognizes that his heart is deceitfully wicked and he can't even know it on most days. So he finds himself in the Word often. He finds himself in dependence upon God. And that's manifest in his home as he leads his wife in prayer and his children in prayer regularly, telling them, we need the Lord in this. I would love to do this, boys. I would love to do this, honey. But God says otherwise. So we're going to make that our path. He's not a slave to his passions and desires, but he's actually marked out by self-sacrifice and giving up rights and privileges even. Why? Because Christ is so impressed upon his heart. Um, that in his own life. 
Listen, and again, that's for the average man. This is for you. It's important to walk away this morning and not think this is for the grossly immoral man, for the serial fornicator, and for the serial killer. But that we as godly men, we as godly women, are to be marked out by hearts and patterns of life. That proclaim and project and display the very grace of God. We're to persevere. We're to take the long game. We're not to give ourselves over to our desires. But we're to give ourselves over to the standard of God. This man knows what the cross teaches. And therefore he takes up his cross and he dies daily. He follows Jesus. And he's marked out by service to others. Let's be that man. Let's be that woman. Let us not take for granted the patient, persevering, long-suffering life of a man. I think it's so easy for us to have just a grand door type of mentality. <clears throat> let me say, you should long for great things. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Um, but I think that we are immature, even as Christians, um, to grab a hold of something like a ministry. Just at the abortion clinic yesterday, as we talked, thought in my own heart how many times I'd abandoned that ministry over the years just because there was a lack of fruit, you know. Just wondering if that's where I ought to be. And in some sense, probably seeking after some type of experience or some type of emotional high. Um, but what a need there is just for patient perseverance. Just long game faithfulness. You know, I think we govern, our, I think we parent our children like that too often. We think that we have to do all the grand door things. We have to take them to all the places that the Joneses are. We have to give them some grand memories of this place and that place. But I often venture, well, I venture to guess, and not just to guess, but a calculated expectation. Probably what will impact my children more out of the 18 years and possibly more that they spend with me will not be the time that we went to the aquarium or the time that we spent the day at Dollywood. But the day-to-day -day faithfulness and continual love that I expressed to them for eight year, 18 years, dying to myself, laying aside my plans and my desires, because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for me. Um, and that's what I would commend to you, not only in your parenting, but in your Christian life. That yes, we should hope for great things, and we should expect them, and often God gives them. And we thank Him for that. Those high mountain experiences. What a blessing. As we see Him closer. It's as if He raises up on a mountain. We get closer to that grand day. You know? And it just strengthens our faith. Um, yet at the same time. Let, us, let it not negate. The graciousness of God to give us. Day in and day out faithfulness. As we're just waking up. Striving to be obedient. Not bring a reproach upon the name of Christ. But to build a life of faithfulness. In which men can trust 
the reality of the proclamation that we made, Christ is our King. All it takes is a day to ruin that. All it takes is an action for men to blaspheme God because of your unfaithfulness. May God protect us from that. And may our lives be evident in testimony as they propagate the truth of God, of the reality of Christ, that He is King. We are of another kingdom. So let us build. And building takes time. Let us be committed to build this kingdom, not only this generation, but also the next. So stand firm, church, in that. Walk after Paul. and Walk after men and women who walk after him. Let us not be enemies of the cross. But let us be patiently awaiting our Lord's return. So let us go to him now. Father, we thank you and praise you just for the reality of the text. Father, I thank you for men like Paul who's been a tremendous blessing to my own soul. Father, he's like a pastor to my heart. Father, in my study, I know that your spirit speaks But you use him so magnificently as if a pastor was sitting across my desk. And even more so, Father, I'm resting in my heart. I thank you for him, but I also thank you for other men. Faithful examples, Father, who put tangible feet upon the gospel. They seem so few and far between, but I also think that's probably because I've not had eyes to look on many occasions. Wanted to follow after my own heart, my own desires. And Lord, I know that that's in very opposition of the gospel. Father, may you help us to be mature men and mature young women, mature older men and mature older women, recognizing, Father, our need of one another, our need of exhortation, our need of admonition, our need of correction, our need of sanctification, Father, and ultimately our need of one another. Well, we know that your word speaks, Father, and it's able to accomplish sanctification in our hearts. What a blessing it is to have others speak that word. And you make it alive, not only with their words, but with their lives. What power, Father, lies within that. Father, through that, it just provokes us to look unto that great day. Father, we praise you for the cross. We praise you for your son. And we praise you for that grand day when we'll stand before him, Father, and he'll finally receive the reward of his sufferings out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it'll be in a fashion that we can just honor him, Father, unbridled, unrestrained, with glory that he deserves. Father, we long for that. Father, we eagerly wait for that. Yet at the same time, we recognize we have a job to do. We have labor to accomplish. You have a kingdom to build. So let us labor diligently as a runner, as an archer, with our eyes fixed upon that prize, the high calling of, of, of Christ Jesus, Father. And we'll wait. We'll wait, Father, because we trust you. We'll wait, Father, because we believe your promises. But while we wait, we trust that you will not leave us alone, that your spirit will go with us, Father, pregnant with power, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And we'll praise you, Father, for those 
explicit external presentations of your glory and your grace on the mount like on the mount of transfiguration yet at the same time we will praise you in the valleys father when we're seemingly at home alone doing the difficult hard and mundane things but those things too we must recognize carry power the power of a faithful life and father through it may you just present the gospel to our children Father, may you save every one of them in this church father May you bring them all to a knowledge of yourself. I know that in your sovereign grace, you save whomever you will. Yet at the same time, Father, well, I trust how pleasing it would be, Father, you to save all of our children. So that's, that's my hope. That's my prayer. Every one of them, Father. But at the same time, let it be in tandem with a faithful life, proclaiming the gospel, often with our tongues as well as our hands. And use it, Father, to your end and to your glory. Otherwise, we pray that you would not use it at all. So, Father, we give this time to you now to do with it as you please and for your own, and for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing to end the service. Number 405. 405. Let us sing together the great truths of this song, Not in Me. And I pray that these realities are true of your life as well. And if not, and you're outside of Christ, today is it as if I was speaking another language that you don't understand, that Christ is provoking your heart to Him. I would beg you not to leave unsaved, but to allow us just a few moments, and all evening if it takes, into next week, the opportunity to show you Christ in all the Bible, that He may raise your heart to life. Take out a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That you may have a new king. And a new kingdom. And a new life. To live for his honor and glory.